This is the Earth Regenerators Podcast. Generators Radio Hour. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Earth Regenerators podcast. Today we'll be taking a look at the work of a much appreciated member of the Earth Regenerators community, who has begun a fascinating project in the Pacific Northwest of the USA, a series of engagements with riverine landscapes that he loosely calls restoration camping. This is boots on the ground, active care of country, which is clearly important enough all by itself. For me, though, it's the cultural dimension and cultural potential of this work that I find so engaging and so promising for the future. The way in which this work can unfold in the hearts and minds of participants and the nuance of meaning that is supported to develop within the experience and to build towards something greater than itself. But I'll let you get your own sense of the project. The initiator is Paul Cherichino. And the project is his recently launched invitation to the first biocultural field station on the Skycomish River through a small organisation called the Ecosystem Guild. Check it out at ecosystemguild.org. We recorded this interview late last year and the conversation lasted well over an hour and a half, covering some varied terrain and entering some dense thickets, so to speak. So I decided for the sake of digestibility to make two episodes out of the conversation. What you're listening to now is part one of our conversation, with part two soon to be released. I hope this provides something of a window into the work Paul is doing, and informs your sense of what might be done in your part of the globe, in this crucial time of history. I know it has done for me. And now, on to the conversation. Hi there, I'm Andy Wildman. How to describe myself, I'm an enthusiastic member of the Earth Regenerators community, in which I've made so many wonderful friends and found, in the words of singer Max McFarland, a human haven. The Earth Generators community is to me a haven of deeply sane people who are exquisitely aware of the shocking ecological precipice on which we all stand in this long period of overshoot and collapse, and also the delicate and beautiful work we need to do together to survive and hopefully thrive into the future. Earth Regenerators is a beautiful online community gathering digitally from all over the world and genuinely acting in mutual support and care to help each other manifest the necessary work that is needed in the world. As you might guess from my accent, I'm recording this on Australian soil. My home is a small hamlet in southern Tasmania, just south of the city of Hobart. And I'd like to say that I live by the grace of land stolen from the Palawa Nation, in particular the Muanina people, to whose ancestors and descendants I'd like to pay my respects. In order to make respecting and healing this land my life's work, I run a small social enterprise called We Are Humans Project, helping people to understand the multiple crises happening across the earth and what we can do about them. Helping people adapt to climate change, ecological stress, economic contraction, and all that the future might bring, so that they as individuals and we as a culture can reach our regenerative potential. But today, as a contribution to the Earth Regenerators Community Podcast, I'm interviewing Paul Cherigino. Paul is doing what I think is incredibly interesting work around the Salish Sea area, nested in the northwest coastal bioregion of the US and Western Canada, 
We'll get to that interesting work in just a second. It's worth noting that Paul has lived in this bioregion for his entire life, a descendant of Italian war immigrants on one side and Oregon Trail settlers on the other. So his connection to place runs three to five generations deep and represents two waves of settler colonization. Paul describes himself as a bottom-tier bureaucrat in the largest natural resource management system on Earth. He's a federal agent with the US government, basically, working to distribute federal capital to underground projects that increase ecological capital. He also works to quantify ecosystem services in order to pursue damage claims against private parties that contaminate the Earth. And now we get to the really interesting work from the point of view of our shared vision here in the Earth Regenerators community. For the last decade, he's been mapping social ecological systems on the US side of the Salish Sea. He tells me he does a lot of technical cartography, but his concurrent interest in systems theory has extended to reckoning with social ecological systems at at a landscape scale. As I understand it, this is culminated in a recently launched project that integrates ecological restoration work, on the ground deeply necessary work to repair riparian landscapes, with the incredibly important insight that Landscape restoration cannot stay a function of governments, institutions, or even the scientific community. It must become, to the joy of participants, ordinary cultural work across our communities. In other words, we need to love it, take great pleasure and pride in it, and let the latent richness of being out on country, as we say in Australia, seep into our souls. Eventually, if we do this right, happily addicting us to the joy of healing country, and thereby healing of culture. That's probably enough of a taster into what Paul is up to, so it's probably time to introduce Paul Cherugino. Paul, welcome to the Earth Regenerators podcast. Thank you, Andy. I think I'm just going to leave right now. I don't think I could top that uh, <laughs> assessment of myself. So, <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> cool. Well, we've had a chat already, obviously, so um, we have some shared context built up between us, but for the listeners, uh, can you describe what it is that you're up to? Uh, sure. I do have to be careful too, because you know, uh, in, in my introduction, you did identify that I'm a, a federal agent. Uh, so, uh, you know, what I'm bringing to you and what I'm talking about is, you know, purely my personal opinions, and it doesn't reflect the uh, policies or uh, opinions of the United States no, federal should. government. Uh, it's funny wearing that hat. I have to, I have to constantly do that funny little dance. Uh, which is is also every time I do it, it's just, it, it's like I have to reckon with this idea that I'm you know part one person, part another, or what does that mean exactly? Yeah. You know, when I <laughs> uh, have you know uh, opinions and thoughts that are sometimes me and sometimes not me, or you know, it's just a it's a it's a good reminder in some ways to myself even you know of the odd situation that I I find myself in. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, and since you did it, I feel compelled. I'm I'm on uh, actually on. Uh, uh, ceded lands of the uh, uh, Squaxin Island tribe, uh, a state chess band who live just down the road and, and continue to uh, continue to reclaim their treaty rights and exert their uh, authority over this place in a way that is really productive. I think that's uh, one thing I've noticed about living here compared to other places is the tribes actually uh, here are a force you know, forced to be reckoned with. They have lawyers, they have cash, they're building their capabilities. You know, in some ways I take, uh, uh, when I think about organizing, uh, I think about how much work uh, and how the tribes have spent so much effort organizing and building power 
you know, within industrial society as, as a strategy to try and reclaim their uh, rightful place. It's uh, a reminder that you have to walk in both worlds uh, in order to uh, do most of anything, it seems. Yeah, it feels like these days we need to walk in. Anyway, that was not your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> That's okay. I feel like we need to walk in, you know, several different worlds at once these days, especially, you know, like a possible world as well as, <laughs> you know, all the ones mm. that exist. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the question was, um, yeah, can you yeah. describe what uh, what it is that you're up to? Yeah. So, I mean, I think very simply, uh I want to gather people that are interested in ecosystems uh, on the land itself in order to explore what it means to do direct stewardship of land, uh, you know, and sort of in trying to carefully pick those different, you know, phrases. Uh, I think I've seen, a, uh, I've done a lot of work that I would say is very abstract where you're not actually talking about a particular piece of land and you're not actually doing direct stewardship. You're, uh, you know, sort of pontificating about, you know, the idea of stewardship. Uh, and I think there's a, a difference there that I want to explore. Uh, and then also uh, uh, gathering with people uh, on the land, and I, I do mean sleeping there, you know, is, is part of it. Uh, and so I think uh, in my Years before being a federal bureaucrat, I spent a lot of time doing uh, landscape construction work. And even then, I remember, uh, you know, there's on some long days, there's always the there's there's moments at the beginning of the day and the end of the day uh, before the work or after the work uh, when you're just still and you're in a place and you're feeling the morning or you're feeling the day end. And, uh, and you know, those have always been special times, mm. you know, throughout humanity. And, uh, and, and sort of the, you're pausing and you're, you, uh, you've, you've done something and then you pause to reflect and you absorb something of the qualities of a place. And I, um, you know, ever since becoming a environmental professional, I've never been asked to do that. You know, I've never, it's like, okay, everyone, we're going to now pause and, you know, uh, take in the, the essence of this place and use that to inform you know, how we how we uh, have how we build this relationship. And so I, I want to. I want part of your job. As, as I want to go do agent. that more, and I want to bring. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. How no, surprising! No. Let's. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're we're a bang for the buck kind of organization. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, so that so I think that basically it's a. Uh, uh, I want to do something which I, I, I quickly call restoration camping, which is I want to go stay on land and do restoration work. And uh, I want to do the restoration work for the purpose, not just of uh, restoring ecosystems. Oh, and that's a whole nother question. Uh, but for the purpose of building relationships between people and the land, between between people and people, um, uh, and, and, and to take it to a... a a different level and to confront the uh, uncertainty of uh, trying to figure out what's your what's your purpose here you know what, what are we supposed to do here if we have the choice uh, so much of what we do in restoration is defined by programs or funding or you know other decisions made at some other point in, in a hierarchy 
uh, if you're actually there trying to figure so out what the right, right thing if, to do um, is, it gets more difficult. Mentioning it right, that you're a lot of um, background work. <laughs> I know you know that you put into this a lot of organisation, a lot of sort of crafting an invitation to people, design of the event itself. They come on to you know come along to do this work, but then you're also just leaving that space open, as you just said to decide together what it is that you're doing there is that is that how you what you mean by that like you will actually have conversations around the fire about what yeah, you're doing y- y- in the place yes and i would say uh they're like in any you know group of people uh uh I, I probably will end up taking a position of natural authority because I know more about the place and I'm the one that arranged it. And so people will defer to me. And also I have a relationship that I've negotiated that lot lets us be there. So uh, I, I've, I was just thinking about it the other day. I think the what I would like to arrange is a it's a system of hosts and guests. It's sort of a, a, go, a host and guest relationship. Uh, so, I mean, essentially, I'm, um, uh, I, I think of the land as, as a host, and I'm trying to be a good guest, and you can just take that and set it aside for the moment. Uh, but then ultimately, there's a landowner that owns the parcel, and, uh, and I'm the guest of the landowner, and so I have to come to terms with uh, the landowner. Often that involves needing an institutional sponsor, uh, particularly because I want to, the land I want to go visit, the land I want to go stay on is 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 what I would call a a public trust landscape, or a a commons. So along a river or around a wetland, and these are uh, regulated pieces of land, and uh, and the private property owner uh, might be nervous about twenty strangers showing up and sleeping in their forest. You know, so there's all kinds of details, uh, who's responsible for who and who does what if something goes wrong and all of that has to be resolved. So I have uh, an institutional sponsor that uh, uh, I have to establish a relationship with. And then, uh, and then I'm in a position to, to ask, put out an invitation. Uh, and then I have to encourage people to, to come and, uh, and, and go sleep in this forest and for several days and, and, and do some work. And, and people, I think, would be disappointed if they showed up and I had no idea. So I do a bunch of work ahead of time in uh, doing site surveys and developing maps and having conversations with the landowner and coming up with some strategies of, of the kind of work we could do on the site. So uh, all those things lay in. Uh, ultimately, though, I mean, I would love to, uh, I would ultimately would like to be able to do as little as possible mm-hmm. uh, and also to have the work build on itself over time uh, so that people return and are already familiar with the site and things we've done in the past. Uh, usually as a contractor, if you're showing up on a site, you have a job to do and you show up and you do the job. Uh in this case, it would be great to, to reference what people who visited there before saw and did and to go see how it's going, uh, to learn uh, by observing change over time. Uh, these are things that are often neglected in the restoration industry uh, that I'd like to try and add back to the process. And when I, uh, and when I, uh, when I sell it 
to someone, I call it a biocultural yes. restoration uh, station. Yes, yes. So it's our field station, biocultural restoration field station, uh, as a uh, a way to try and capture all those bits and pieces into something that sounds smart <laughs> yeah, and yeah, academic. yeah. I've, I've become rather fond of that word too, biocultural. It's um, I don't know. It's uh, yeah, for many reasons, as it, as it fits with our culture, but it also has a new understanding. I think. I mean, I think of it in terms of the you know the work of restoring land as being you know one and the same work as restoring our cultures there's other ways to imagine that of course um can you give us a little bit of a picture of what what kind of work does tend to happen or i, I gather you've done like there's been one um field station am i right so far <laughs> Yes. 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 Yep. I mean, just yep, exactly. to give a bit of context for. So, for... I, I I don't know shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> People who who you know yep. just uh, tuning into this for the first time, I guess um you know this is a new project. Um, I've been following it sort of inception and and have been kind of um very uh really interested um uh, because it's you know something that um my experience actually of reading your invitation to the the first field station was you know a sense of oh wow yes this is this is what i have been trying to imagine and manifest and uh, or something like it um and uh for me it will take a, a fair bit longer but mm. um you know there was a real sense of excitement at um seeing you put real design and careful thought into manifesting exactly this sort of you know both work an experience like it's a you know there's almost a sort of a an experience design going on here because of the the desire to to create culture and and i guess um i'm really interested in like elaborating a little bit more on you know why restoration camping like you mentioned mm. you know, that the sleeping on the ground and those mm. moments but um you know this aspect of your project mirrors my own thinking about how to build re you know restorative culture and I think um, this is crucial to the process. So I was obviously I'm asking this for the listeners' sake, but also to to delve into why camping on the land is integral to the work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I could offer maybe two versions, you know, mm -hmm. because uh, again, I, I've you know been been trying to get to the point in describing all of those institutional steps to try and get to where I can invite 20 strangers. Uh, and ultimately it's, you know, I'm inviting some people I know, some people I don't know, but it's a mix of folks, uh, you know, to come uh, drive out to the end of some farm road <laughs> on a river and meet some stranger out there. Yeah. You know, like basically. And, and so it's, um, you know, it, the, for me, it's, it's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's slightly in some ways, it's slightly, you know, terrifying to try and uh, not not because they're strangers, but just because I've spent so long trying to work towards this, and you want it all to work out. Yeah, you know? yeah. But there's so much uncertainty, you know, like, uh, um, you know, are people going to get along? Is this going to be what they expected? Uh, are 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 you know how are people going to react uh you know to different ideas or thoughts or to the work itself or you know so it's um and there was certainly um you know i mean essentially what we've been planning on doing is is we arrive in the afternoon we you know sort of get to know each other in the evening have a meal uh you know introduce the site some 
you know, and uh, I'll go to sleep, wake up, and then we work in the morning when it's cooler or, you know, it's uh, and we're fresh. Uh, and then take a break and have lunch. And then the afternoon, we trade skills, teach things. I am always show up ready to teach a number of different things that relate to the kind of work we're doing. And then, uh, and then have free time, you know, uh, bef- you know, during and after dinner to do as you please, either socialize or not, you know, uh, not everyone can stand, you know, 24 hour a day socializing. Um, so at the same time, I felt like it was, it felt like one of those things where you invite you, 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 you're hosting a party and you're just really hoping that someone shows up, you know, and, <laughs> and you're not sure. Uh, if it's going to work out at all, or if people are going to like the the eggplant dip or whatever, you know, it's like. So I mean, it was really it's it's really actually very stressful in some ways, and I've been I've been struggling to actually enjoy it myself, yeah, you know, yes. because I mean, and I think that that and it's it's uh, as soon as as soon as you trust, you know, it, it requires a, a kind of uh, not a not a. Uh, trust in people but sort of a trust in fate you know <laughs> whatever is uh-huh. dished to you you will be able to uh, work with it well and so that's been an exercise i think even in, as i now prepare for the second camp and it feels like it's like all over again you know because mm. <laughs> it's um we don't necessarily have the consistency of the same people every time or trying to I feel like I'm still trying to convince people to show up i dream of the day when i just put out the invitation and like you know, it's a matter of like drawing straws for who comes this time, you know, <laughs> but at this point I'm still having to do a lot of, uh, kind of cajoling and recruitment. Right, yeah. And this next wave is, uh, is, uh, January. So January, February, March. And for us, that's the, the planting season. Um, it's the, the dormant season, it's wet, it's cold. And it's, uh, so it's going to be a, it's going to be a tougher experience, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, hoping that everyone's prepared appropriately for camping in a northwest winter and that the river doesn't flood and that the you know the it doesn't rain straight for three days so yeah there's a a lot of um sort of small logistical worries at this point that i'm still kind of rolling around in my head Mm -hmm. and i take and i i didn't answer your question about what the work actually is though so i can no but i i realized that i had two questions in there didn't i i asked what what the uh what the work actually is, and also the the cultural uh, meaning or whatever of that layer of of actually camping on on land and why why it, why it needs to be camping. So there was a two there, <laughs> double barreled. Yeah, I, I felt compelled to, I I felt compelled to disclose the uh, <laughs> the fear part uh, in part because I could just sell I could just sell the the product you know, as fully formed. And yet, at the same time, it's really important to recognize that, you know, you might start something like this and kind of be wandering into it and trying it out. And then you find yourself, you know, petrified and struggling, and then think, oh, I must be doing something wrong. But no, actually, that's exactly how it's supposed to feel. Mm. Uh, Mm. I think you're supposed to feel uh, freaked out when you're playing with an edge, you know? Yeah, for sure. And one of the things I've really appreciated about how how we do things in Earth Regenerators community is is that sense of being really willing to learn together. That that an offering, you know, doesn't need to re, you know reach a, a level of you know professional polish before you offer it, and uh, and you know just the sense that 
your commitment in in, in uh, putting that energy into offer it is enough, and we'll learn together. You know, it's not um, one person achieving some kind of plateau, <laughs> and other people mm-hmm. following. You know, which is um, you know something I I really <laughs> love. So yeah, I feel like that's a you know your your strategy there of <laughs> or or sent, need to disclose the the fear and the kind of and the you know the sense of making it up as you go along. I feel like that that it's right at home in the in the Earth Regenerators community at least, and uh, and hopefully that's a that's a sense that's growing in the world that uh, that's how we do things you know how a strong way to go forward. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The work or sleeping? Okay. What do you think? Uh, which one? Let's go work first, then sleeping. <laughs> Usually goes that way around in mm. in, uh, in life, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, there's a a lot of background I could give. In in uh, in my bioregion, uh, the the rivers are important. It's they're a big deal. Uh, the river valleys are the only place where you can have easy water in a in a drought summer climate uh the every town is built on a river we're just basically a network of river towns connected by roads up and down the valleys um the keystone species that has supported societies here for thousands of years is is a anadromous fish salmon pacific salmon and every year you know, thousands and thousands of fish swim up the rivers and lay their eggs, and then they overwinter, and then the young hatch and, and swim out again. And so that uh, the rivers are also the cornerstone of our future food security. Most of our food comes from elsewhere now, but we have uh, a lot of agricultural opportunity in the river valleys. So I often will say that sort of the, the sort of the crucible of our future will be the floodplains that's where we're going to make or break you know, our our bioregion and so uh the the place i picked was on a river where it's an important place there's a lot of social restoration industry energy a lot of social energy in that river valley and i wanted to pick a place that was you know not removed but that was sort of in the thick of it and so the site there is um a young a mixture of remnants, patches of forest that are still there, but they've been they've been grazed for by cattle, but then recovered, and then other patches that are pretty trashed and that have fast-growing, uh, you know, pioneer tree species, cottonwood mostly, um, that are growing on them. And there's a there's a lot of uh, two particularly aggressive introduced species uh, in, in these river valleys. Uh, the Himalayan blackberry and a Japanese knotweed that form uh, mono-specific uh, patches, these big, and then they sort of fill in a lot of niches and cracks. And so there's um, the interesting thing is this: this land is incredibly productive. You know, it's rich. It was once you know uh, amazing gathering grounds and all kinds of resources, but it's been damaged and then neglected. And now that neglect is actually enforced by our legal regulations, the, the regulations by which we hope to protect, you know, this place are also prevent 
most people from feeling like they can do anything in that space. You're supposed to leave it alone, remove the people and and leave it alone. And so um, in this case, the work is uh, driven by a concept of salmon recovery and native plant restoration. Uh, but I am also approaching it in terms of thinking about uh, household value and uh, long-term forest management, uh, you know, both as a uh, sort of a household enterprise as well as restoration ecology, uh, which is not too far from the truth because I'm sure significant parts of this landscape were probably managed by the tribal communities, you know, for thousands of years. So I think the the line between, um, you know, something we like to think of as as wilderness and you know what the landscape actually has been, is is uh, is confusing for for many. So yeah, the work is uh, 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 disturbance, uh, propagation, and aftercare <laughs> from a mm-hmm. from a physical perspective. Mm-hmm. We uh, we we muck muck something up to create an empty niche. We stick something into the niche, and then we try and uh, see if it survives, or what we have to do to make it survive to be add a new member of the community, and uh, and so that's and you just do it over and over again, uh, in different disturbances, different ways of propagating, different kinds of aftercare, uh, just to shift the biodiversity and structure of the this complex vegetation until it uh, yields more. So that's the. There is a, a million little rabbit holes from there. Mm. Uh, which species? What elevation? How much water is there? Is it a wetland? Is it dry? The the, the floodplains are so diverse. There's there's sloughs. There's backwater areas. Uh, I was just crawling around in a young spruce grove that backwatered in the last flood, <laughs> and there's a bunch of uh, red twig dogwood there, which is a great basket plant and a berry producing shrub. And so I was thinking about maybe we could you know, increase the sort of increase the dogwood until it becomes a really dominant understory and maybe limb up the spruce to let more light in so that the dogwood is a little more vigorous. You know, would that be the right thing to do here? I don't know. You know, and so we just kind of play with that. Mm. The dogwood can be reproduced by cutting a branch and sticking it in the moist soil. So, uh, you know, do we, do we prune the dogwoods? Do we thin them? Do we cut them to the ground? Do we, you know, uh, pollard them what what makes the best basket materials what makes the best fruit for the birds how much light do they need mm-hmm. should we thin out the spruce should we or do nothing or just stick some sticks in the ground and walk away i don't know you know so it's, it's that kind of process which makes it uh, very different than sort of industrial restoration which doesn't have a really clear idea of where we're going or why we're going anywhere other than you know completing acres mm-hmm. And I'm starting to get the picture that these are the sorts of conversations you'll be having around the the campfire in the evenings, mulling over those kinds of questions. And, you know, as you said, you'd have a a natural authority in the, in the conversation, having organized it and being somewhat of a professional in the space and all that sort of thing. But, um, I gather you're inviting people into that sort of, um, I suppose there's there's an element of um, um, passing on some ecological literacy, but I also imagine there's also an element of 
yeah, doing it together as, you know, bringing people into that sense of, um, you're a part of this. Am I, am I imagining that correctly? Mm -hmm. And, and I think that my challenge is to, um, recognize that I'm, I'm playing different roles. I, I, at some points in time, if there's a gap, I can play the authority, you know, or the teacher or the mentor and share what I know. Uh, and in particular, if folks are looking for that, if they want leadership, uh, in other cases, I'm, I'm a convener or I'm a host. Like, so for example, I've invited, um, a county staff person, uh, counties or local government jurisdiction, okay. in Western Washington, uh, who is, uh, he, uh, he manages the knotweed control and also does revegetation on county properties up and down the valley. And he has particular approaches and techniques and experiences and sort of relationships with the work that are, you know, unique to his role and his position. And, uh, and he's also an ally and he has a nursery in the valley and does work for the local government and has crews that are young people that are just entering into the industry and their first experiences, you know, not weed control and planting on the river. Mm-hmm. So I see uh, the camp as a place, uh, as a, it becomes a, a gathering place is my goal. And, and if I can be a good host, I can uh, attract people, encourage people to come. And by stepping into the camp and sitting around a fire and maybe even spending the night and working a little, uh, it, it, it changes everyone's identity and it leaves us all just sitting there in the woods, mm. you know, and that, uh, and that in that context of just sitting there in the woods, some of the, the natural conditioning of being part of a county or part of a federal government or a student or something else can kind of slip away a little bit. Mm. Uh, and that, that's the kind of space that I'm, I'm hoping to try and host. Uh, and I think uh, already, uh, you know, on one section, we started just by in, uh, in, in September of cutting knotweed and laying its shoots down in strips. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, it's basically a chop and drop for permaculture people mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and organizing the mulch into strips. And so we can maintain the basically building uh, mulch strips and then having an alley between that we can manage with a scythe. And, uh, and then uh, using that approach to sort of reduce the area under management. So we're just managing the mulch strips, and now we can just maintain the rest of it with a scythe, harvesting the knotweed regrowth as mulch, you know, and then start figuring out how to add new species into that system, you know, sort of changing the dynamics with the knotweed. Uh, until now, uh, cutting knotweed has been a scary thing for people trying to do knotweed control because they were afraid that knotweed would float downstream and lodge in a stream bank and start a new colony. And so people are really scared of green knotweed shoots. And I kind of looked at them and they didn't look so tough, you know. Uh, and <laughs> after I, it, cutting them in fall, I noticed that uh, there were no shoot, uh, there were no buds, you know, on the, sh- on the ramets, on the shoots. And all the buds are at the base and at the, the root crown. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, they, they all died. And nothing, and there was plenty of soil contact in these mulch piles and plenty of moisture and a layer of leaves on top and none of them rerooted, none of them survived. Mm-hmm. And so I took some video and sent them and, and, and originally he was feeling really uncomfortable 
with the idea of cutting knotweed. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I understand. I, it, under certain circumstances, I would be uncomfortable cutting knotweed too. But look at what I see here. Look at what I, we did this and we saw this and this was the outcome. What do you think? You know, and so then that's opening a, a conversation or a door into let's get a deeper understanding of knotweed and how it grows and its body and how its body functions and how it operates over the course of a year and have more of a, a relationship with knotweed that's inquisitive. You know, you know, even even as we you know figure out how to starve it into death, you know? <laughs> but, but at the same time recognizing you know that it's it's a it, it's a creature yeah. that is worth knowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And are you so far? You know, in in your with having done your prototype of the of the field station, have you noticed a, a sort of a, a culture of intimacy? You know, of that kind. You know, growing within the group, and how you know, have you had feedback from them to to say what they how they experienced it? Yeah, I think. I mean, you know, it, there's a diversity of people, and different people are, I think, are having different experiences, and it's really young to see. Mm. I think uh, uh, you know some folks are, you know, more reserved, and s some folks feel like. They're just gushing with excitement. They were born for this, you know, and they've been, a, they've only had one experience of this kind and, and it's the, the best thing ever, yeah. you know? So, um, you know, so I think it's a yeah. mix and, uh, and I think it's just, I mean, I'd say, uh, just to, to make it even more complicated, my, my goal is to not have random individuals come mm -hmm. to camp. Uh, and, and this is sort of a structural, hypothesis that I'm, I'm sort of struggling with now because it's not the natural thing, but I want people to come as groups. I would like people to assemble a small group from where they live and come together ready to support each other in the camping experience. Mm. It makes the camping easier if you have a small group rather than everyone bringing their own redundant stuff. Gotcha. Um, and also it dramatically reduces my workload as the, as the host, uh, to say, uh, which groups can come? Okay, here's four groups that are all going to bring four people, and now we're a full house, uh, so we're done. And then I can uh, delegate more and more sort of leadership and preparation and work back to the participating mm -hmm. groups, which then return to their homes and you know uh, have a relationship through this experience uh, and also through the, the process of biocultural restoration and ultimately, I'm hoping to cultivate and support durable groups uh, all over the Salish Sea that can then participate in the formation of a field station. Yes, uh, yes. With the goal of ultimately of, of putting myself out of work so that I can just show up at other people's field stations for the rest of my life and, and not have to host them and have that sense of terror of whether anyone's <laughs> going to come. And stuff like that. So, yeah for sure yeah 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 i guess um <laughs> yeah you're trying to seed something um <laughs> for the future obviously when i um i was just thinking that when i first read about what you were doing i was struck by the the clarity and the the, the ambitiousness but also of the humility of how you articulated the reasons for the work and i'm just actually looking at the website the ecosystemguild.org website and um, I'm going to read out a little bit. This is a, this is a quote. So it says, why, why field stations? Uh, 
We suspect that the root of our ecological problems and a fair number of social problems are baked into our culture, which is on autopilot and an ecological overshoot. This is likely to end poorly. We suspect that a viable human culture will regenerate and tend ecosystems as part of its lifestyle. We propose to step away from our busy industrial and institutional lives, live simply in public trust landscapes and restore them. We can then back engineer the traditions and infrastructures necessary to do the work of biocultural restoration gracefully and pleasurably so that learning ecological restoration in in community is a cultural birthright. Like I find that very simple and beautiful vision i'd love if you could elaborate or comment on that and i have a few other questions as well of course <laughs> that's funny it makes me all teary-eyed i've never heard someone read my writing before <laughs> and it uh it is heartfelt yeah yeah you know, it is it's uh yeah, it's beautiful <laughs> it's uh it it's uh yeah the the idea of um my daughter is uh is now uh you know a, a young adult in in college and when she was young she accompanied me in my wanderings and crawled around on our bellies looking at slugs and you know learned what she could eat in the forest and stuff like that and uh, i think it was maybe third grade when she kind of had this realization at some point on the playground somewhere i think she was feeding children berries or something and someone freaked out you know and, my, and, and um and she was really confused and then suddenly she realized that uh not only did her peers the kids not know the plants and which ones you could eat but the the grown-ups didn't know either and that she was holding this information uh that was made her a freak you know, uh, that, that made her, made people scared of her, you know, because she got this big emotional reaction out of her adult mentor community, you know, by, by, by feeding people berries that everyone knows, or, you know, (laughs) of course, when they get that red, they're yummy, you know? So, uh, when I think about birthright, you know, a cultural birthright, uh, and about, um, what cult, and this is where, this is where, you know, Joe Brewer's work at, and, and his sort of, uh, uh, hosting at earth regenerators meant so much to me is the in particular this idea of cultural niche formation really struck me i didn't have words for that actually uh before uh running into his writing and this idea that um now i I can't unsee it you know it's like the red pill blue pill kind of experience where where everything i see around me all the structures, all the roads, the streets, the wires, the freeways, the doors, the this microphone, you know, are all, they're not just things. They're representation of a cultural niche, a whole sequence of cultural niches that I can buy German beer down the street at a grocery store, but I can't walk into a river forest and restore it, you know, as easily. There's uh, so that I, I feel like we've invested in all this infrastructure that enables all of these incredible things, as well as a horrific level of, of, of degradation. And yet we don't have the most basic social, cultural, or technological infrastructure to have a relationship with the soil and plants and landscapes around us. So I've always had sort of a, in raising a child, in that context 
you know, had this sense of a little bit of a sadness or tragedy, you know, that why, why is it so hard? Why isn't it her birthright, mm. you know, to have access to land, to have access to, to knowledge and relationship to all living things. So that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's the, you know, that's the problem, right? That's, that's the, the problem definition mm. that we're kind of wrestling with is, uh, it's a it's a reinvention of culture it is indeed a reinvention of culture we are gesturing toward here and what paul is doing is to my mind an incredible contribution to that ultimate project a highly considered beginning to a long process of coming home to an earth connected culture so that one day we can be genuinely proud of the acculturation that our children step into. We'll pause on that somewhat sad but truthful note and pick up again in a following episode. What number is yet to be seen? But ahead of us in the conversation is our exploration, amidst a fair bit of laughter, of growing up in a non-ecological culture, the process of colonisation that we must all grapple with, a brief look at permaculture in the context of this kind of work, Paul's lovely take on the enormity of the restoration task ahead of us and how he might think about the urgency of this rather slow and subtle work. Having covered what the project is all about and what it is physically and culturally manifesting in this part of the conversation you just listened to, we diverge into how such a project is created and how it proceeds. We talk about the limits to our own responsibility, about whole systems design thinking for ecological culture creation, the need for a toolkit for working with human systems, how we might deinstitutionalize the process of restoration, and working with complexity over time to an emergent purpose. I hope you'll join us. I know I enjoyed the conversation very much, and I hope you do too. Watch this space for the next installment. This has been an episode of the Earth Regenerates Community Podcast. Until next time, fellow humans, take care. This podcast is a decentralized platform for the regenerative community. Anybody on Earth Regenerators can propose or record their own episode. So if you are already on Earth Regenerators, contact Jacob Seidler if you have an idea for a future interview or audio essay. And if you're not on there yet, come and join us for regular learning journeys on the pathway to regeneration, inspiration from the many regenerative projects reporting there, and a wonderful community woven around mutual support. Just enter Earth Regenerators into your search engine and find a website or follow the link in the description. Let's regenerate the Earth.